Tuesday, September 20th, 2016, and this is episode 171 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Good evening, Jerry. How are you, sir? I am super duper. How are you? I'm good. We're, we're two days late. Sorry. Sorry. Yep, my fault. Well, it's kind of my fault, too. I was busy, too. And then you had some craziness, more craziness. You always have more craziness. Yep, that's right. You need to get your priorities straight, mister. This podcast should be coming first. <laughs> I'm working on it. I only need a few thousand more uh, Patreon donors, and then we'll be, we'll be good. Fair enough. It's tough. It's tough being executive, isn't it? Yes. See? You should have thought about that. Yes, it is. It's a different world. Didn't you learn anything from Star Trek? Don't let them promote you out of the chair. <laughs> Wow, I, I I I hadn't thought of it that way. Hmm. Yeah, good point. I should I should go into career counseling. You Everything should. I learned about career counseling came from Star Trek. Absolutely. So uh, before we get into the show, just a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we have on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employer. Uh, and by the way, um, we are just a couple of days away from DerbyCon, and so I will be there and uh, hoping to see some or all of you. That's true. I uh, regrettably cannot go this year. I'm getting married in 18 days, something like that. And I'm so I have my priorities messed up. <laughs> Nothing start, starts a marriage off well like disappearing right in the crunch time of wedding planning. That's right. So uh, congrats. Well, well, we haven't made it there yet. <laughs> it could still go terribly awry. Either way. Uh, anyway, so I will not be at DerbyCon this year. My apologies. I wish I could. I uh, will be there if all goes well next year. That is my intention. So Good. You'll have Jerry all to yourself this year. That's right. Well, my family will be there too. So. Now, are they actually going to the con? Or are they yeah, just... yeah, they're... Oh, wow. Yeah. Nice. Should be interesting. In- including the loss of puppy, now security doggy? Uh, no. Oh. They, they won't let her... <laughs> You need you need to get registered like as a cyber support dog. She's my she's my therapy dog. <laughs> she spells out bad packets for you. <laughs> I like it. All right, so um, let's jump into our stories for today. Well, oh, just before we do, yeah, while we're talking ahead. about conferences, we should also quickly mention yes, O'Reilly Security Conference coming up in late October, early November, right. which we will both be at. That's in New York City. New York City. Uh, and we've got uh, 20% off code for that, I think. Yep. It's uh, Security it 20. Yes. So that's a that's a more akin to like a black hat type conference with training courses and that kind of stuff as well. But uh, it's, a, it's an inaugural conference where we're actually presenting a track or we're running a track, uh, the Ignite Talks, which is going to be happening Halloween night. It's five-minute talks. 
basically with auto advancing slides on pretty much any topic. Uh, the reason I'm pimping this is because we're running it and we want it to be awesome. And two, uh, call for papers for that is open. So That's right. If you, if you have an idea for a night talk, you should submit and come hang out with us in New York City. And the embarrassment isn't very long, right? It's only five minutes. Well, no, it can go on for days. Well, well that's... the talk is only five minutes. The that, oh, okay, lifetime. Fair, fair enough. No, fair no, enough. no, no, no. Let me take that back. It's a, it's a very friendly. At least we hope it to be comforting, accepting, great place to kind of get some prezo experience, and you know, in a little bit more challenging auto advanced environment. But uh, we'll make it very friendly. And and uh, by the way, I bought my Halloween costume. Oh boy. Oh, I'm frightened beyond words. Oh, yes. So if you want to see me in a costume, probably the only time you'll ever see that happen. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> All right. We've we've now burned way too much time on non-stories, but... Sorry. Uh, no, no. Back it's on track. Uh, but, yeah, because people you know, kind of criticize us when we get off Oh, I know. I know. Trust me. We, we, we are nothing if not reactive to our audience. True. So uh, getting into our stories, the first one comes from CSO Online, and the title is, A Single Ransomware Network Has Pulled In $121 Million. So this is a, a, a report out of McAfee, who I guess is now off on their own. Soon. Uh, soon. Oh, soon. Okay. Yeah, uh, re- replaced, by the way, by RSA. I, I like they didn't even they didn't even wait till the divorce was finalized to get their new girlfriend, did they? <laughs> you know, it's kind of like having a backup plan. Yeah, yeah. I guess right. <laughs> they don't like to be alone. So, uh, wait, so, does that make RSA like the rebound that never ends well? That's what I was thinking. Oof. Oh, yeah. So anyhow, um, the 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 deal here is that this report points out that uh, one particular malware. Uh, sorry, ransomware campaign had netted um, $94 million after expenses, $121 million before expenses. That that gives you some interesting math on expenses, by the way, uh, in the first half of 2016, which is a big bunch of money for one, just one uh, campaign. So um, they, they point out in this that uh, that the, the total... You know, episode of ransomware or, or uh, epidemic of ransomware is up 128% uh, in the first half of this year versus the first half of 2015. And that, that really, I think, seems intuitive, right? I'm actually surprised it's not higher than that. Um, well, one vendor's view. Well, fair enough. Uh, and, you know, so those are, I think those are interesting data points you know, there, there was one other couple of interesting data points here, too, that I saw. There was right after they mentioned the 128% increase, they also said there are 1.3 million new ransomware samples recorded. Now, that's interesting because we know that, that I think that's, that's a little misleading. I think what that means is probably 1.3 million variants of the existing primarily six ransomware families that are out there. These are not net new brand new built from the ground up ransomware. Right. But but the challenge is with morphing and easily changed code, 
they look at these as individual counts, which kind of tells you something a little bit about a signature-based thought process with, the, with that tracking, which is why, and I'm not digging on McAfee, I'm just saying in general, if it's so trivial now to change your code if you're bad guys that signature-based technologies really have a lot of trouble keeping up. Yeah. Well, even I think even the next-gen EVs have a lot of trouble too, despite the marketing. Indeed. So, um, you know, the, I think the the point there is that antivirus evasion, whether it's traditional AV or the more advanced next gen AV, it's a thing, right? I mean, that the the bad guys and the bad girls have access to, uh, you know, have access to tools to aid the evasion, and they have access to to the tools themselves to make sure that it's working. So, uh, this is. This is a concerning trend, and it's going to keep getting worse until something changes. Like, by the way, you know, people uh, people putting ransomware out there that just delete files, which uh, we've talked about in the past. You know, the the real... That's got to annoy the hell out of the main ransomware families. I, I would think so, because that's one of the few things I think that's really going to poison the well. You know, when, when you... When you dissuade or when you when you convince the the general you know, victim populace that they're not likely to get their files back yeah you destroy the entire right uh, possibility that somebody's going to follow through with actually paying the ransom because exactly. they have lost trust and, and this is what's interesting because we actually have a story we talk about this a little later that i think somebody overstates the possibility that someone's not going to get their files back when they pay certainly we've seen that but I would say the vast majority of time, we have seen people been able to accurately get their files back, unless it's a destructive malware that's sort of got a countdown clock to motivate behavior. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So moving on to our uh, our next, it's not really a story, it's, it's a uh, report from SANS.org, and the title is, Data Breaches is Prevention Practical? Now, I find it really interesting that they don't actually answer that question anywhere in the report. Much like art, it's for the viewer to interpret and decide for themselves. Do, do you want every movie to spell out exactly what everything means? Can't you handle an ambiguous ending? Well, as they, as they often say, when, when you see the title of a story or a, or a report like that that is a question, the answer is almost always no. Mm. So... um. Th- you know, it's it's by the way, it's worth a read. It is um, it's based on a survey of a of a bunch of IT professionals and IT security professionals on a couple of different dimensions. Um, it's you know, it's fairly long, it's about thirty pages long. I I do encourage you to read it. The link will be in the show notes. There were there were a couple of notable things. Um, one of which was, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this one, but. One of which was that um, half of the respondents viewed cyber insurance as a preventive control. Yeah, I noticed some interesting thoughts in there. So a lot of the research around this or the, the survey questions were, what is your opinion on something? Like, do you consider this a preventative control? Do you consider this, you know, and... and it, it was interesting. I don't know that I completely agree with their findings either, but it shows where people's thoughts are at, at least of the respondents. Right. And, um, and so, so carrying on, on that, right. They, 
the questions were of the kind, so how important do you think control X is? And did you implement control X? And, uh, and, and it's very interesting to see the, the discontinuity between what people think is important and, um, you know, quote, productive in, in terms of defending their environments and how often they actually uh, deploy it. And it's almost an, almost an inverse correlation between how important people perceive something and how likely they are to have deployed it. Well, and there's an interesting conclusion in my mind that can be drawn from that, but I don't know if it's the right conclusion. A lot of times it says, one sidebar in here says the top four business barriers to prevention, 30% say an inability to secure budget, 25% say a lack of management buy-in. I want to come back to that one. 22% say lack of justification, 21% no firm requirements as to what exactly is needed. What I'm not seeing in here, and I, I, I did not, you know, I kind of had only had a chance to skim this report, but one thing that I think is critical is that your controls match the culture and the business goals of the organization. And if you can't do that, in other words, if you're a very open organization and you, you, you know, that's part of your culture, you can't lock down your web proxies to only go to, you know, 30 approved sites. It's going to be pretty open, which incurs risk, but has a reward in a cultural standpoint. And that's a trade-off that a company can make. And the flip side of that is, is you know, if you're a very locked down organization, you may have perhaps some recruiting challenges with, you know, them wily millennials these days. But so perhaps that comes back to lack of management buy-in. But I often see one of the biggest failures with the security program is not understanding business and aligning the security program with business, especially when it comes to preventative technical controls typically are felt by the, the population. Yeah, and that, that's it's it's an interesting point you bring up because they, they do have a, um, a, a spectrum of different reasons for, uh, I think they call them barriers, right? And in the business area, they have uh, inability to secure budget, lack of management buy-in, lack of justification, no firm requirements, as you mentioned. But you know, the reality is that I don't know that those are actually different things. I think they're just different ways of thinking about the same thing, right? You have not right. convinced management that something is important. <laughs> That's true. So if, if you lack a good justification, you're not going to get buy-in, therefore you're not going to get budget. Right. <laughs> yeah, That's a very good point. So, so, this, so does this say that of the respondents, they don't know how to talk to management? I, I think absolutely so. And even when you get down into the design area, available manpower, well, that's a resource allocation question. Uh, no firm requirements as to exactly what is needed. Lack of management buy-in. Hmm, where did we hear that one before? Right. Uh, you know, so I, I honestly think a lot of this comes down to our collective inability to you know, justify the program. And I, I'm not saying that I have any, a silver bullet on how to do it, but I, I think that we, we hear this mantra over and over again, and we try to like carve it into pieces, but at the end of the day, it's the same problem. Indeed. It's interesting too, that there's not much emphasis on lack of being able to hire qualified people, which we keep hearing over and over again in other reports. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, indeed. There's some interesting nuggets in here. It's definitely worth a read, but it's like you mentioned, a big, long report. So 
Uh, I, I think that to me that, that one of the big takeaways, again, other than what we just talked about, was the that inverse relationship between what people perceive as being important and what they, um, you know, what they have actually implemented. And I think that is worth digging into a little bit more. Does that say that we have, you know, perverse priorities in what we implement because because there's there's well, who's requirements. We? Do you mean the organization? Do you mean the IT we security is, group? We as the IT field, or we as the IT okay. industry, right? The IT security industry, apparently, as assuming the sample, the survey is representative, which is a tenuous thing to assume, but sure, um, you know, we we as as the industry appear to to have a different view of what's effective uh, versus what we've implemented, and the question is. You know, why is that? Is it because they're, they're regulatory, you know, there's regulatory mandates or, you know, the, the boss says that's what's important or, you know, what, why are we not doing what we think is important or, is it, or is it do a we psychological, just, yes. you know, artifact of saying what I'm doing now isn't working. So, right. <laughs> exactly. If you would just let me do X, Y, and Z. Right. Is, is it a grass is greener mm-hmm. thing? And 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 so so that's an interesting um, that's an interesting psychological angle because if you got these people who you know who, who kind of shake their fist at the sky saying you know if we could just buy that blinky box right you know, or if the users just stop clicking things yeah exactly um, well and that's the challenge with with research like this when it's survey based on emotion and feelings it's tough to know. What's really behind these findings? Yeah, you know, as opposed to a technical, scientific measure of something. Well, that's that's really difficult to do in the area of security. Although I I think it it is worth doing if some university or you know some group uh, had the ability to do it. In my mind, that it it's worth doing, but it needs to be objective. And and I also think comparing objective measures versus impressions is is really important. So, for instance, a lot of times you see questions about, like even in this report, how many data breaches did you have? You know, though, even that is a subjective thing. Sure, define a data breach. What's your right? And did that person even know? Yeah, that's a good because, right. You look at who answered this this survey. A lot of them are are IT staff. They're not necessarily in a position to know every particular data breach going on. And, and especially in a lot of especially larger organizations, mm-hmm. you're not allowed to know. I mean, there, there's there's a lot of legal privilege and and compartmentalization that goes on. So, it's you know it's an interesting it's an interesting thing. And again, it, it would be interesting to 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 take a look at under the covers what is the difference between the results of of people's you know views of how often they're getting uh you know, breached versus how often are they actually getting breached i'm not sure how you would measure that but it would be really enlightening because i just feel like we're you know we're we're pinning our a lot of our views on some of these surveys which which are testing the wrong or measuring the wrong things probably so yeah, it's anyway. Feels like feels like a common tread path for us. Yeah, I know. I know. So moving on to our next story 
From Ars Technica, the title here is Swift Hopes to Thwart Fraudsters with Detection System in the Wake of Bank Heist. We haven't had a good Swift story in a couple of weeks, so I'm really happy this is back. Um, <laughs> it's, it just doesn't feel right. Just doesn't, just, Swift. Exactly. It just doesn't feel right. It's like my blankie. So, um, so here, here the, the, for those who may not know, right? Swift, um, Swift is the, um, the the mechanism by which major banks and central banks exchange funds, and it's actually not the the money doesn't flow through Swift. It's basically like an order system where you, uh, you know, if you you tell your neighbor bank that you want them to move some of your money, um, you know, from, from your bank account with them to some other company. And uh, what's happened in the past is a lot of these, uh, apparently a pretty significant number, um, are, are getting compromised because the endpoints, uh, which are basically our terminals, like a workstation terminal, at each of these at each of these banks where customers place orders and receive orders from each other uh well they're getting infected with malware that's that's really highly targeted to this application and does things like obscure the transactions and hides printouts and and lets uh, lets the attackers inject transactions and um you know, request some other bank to transfer funds of of the uh, the victim bank to uh to a third party uh, as as happened with the Bank of Bangladesh, and the challenge there, of course, is that the Swiss system just trusted the endpoints were always secure and always trustworthy. Right, right, and so uh, so yeah, it was always like caveat emptor, you know, or I don't know what caveat endpoint. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so uh, so that's been that's been the the big challenges. And to be fair to Swift, they have always said to the to their member banks, you have to dis- secure your own right. endpoints. But as we've seen, that's been a challenge for some banks, especially the smaller ones and in, in some yep. of the ones in the you know in developing countries uh, like like Bangladesh. So what what is new here is that Swift has come out and said, um, you know, by the way, we're going to provide you a reconciliation report on a daily basis. That's going to come to you out of band because again, one of the one of the fatal flaws with the existing system is that transaction receipts would print out through the same computer uh, where the transactions were made, and so the malware was had like one stop shopping. They could you know they could inject transactions and they could obscure or you know, stop the printouts or what, what right. Have you. So so now the bad guys have to instead of getting into one system, they have to get into two. Two systems, exactly. Two systems. Just probably totally inconceivable for them to do. <laughs> but Sorry, but Jared. anyway, it's a it's a. I mean, it, look. It, <laughs> when I first read this, I'm like, you know, oh my gosh, they're they're uh, they're doing. I mean, this is just reconciliation reports. It's, it's like the well, it's like the most fundamental, <laughs> basic accounting well, thing that you can possibly manage it, in. And let's be clear, this is also telling them just quicker that somebody has broken in and transferred. Well, that's right. That's right. They're, I think they actually, their quote is... <laughs> it doesn't actually stop it. It just lets you know faster. Their quote is that I think that Swift actually has a statement on their website that basically says something like, you know, it'll it'll uh, hopefully allow you, the, the member banks, 
to more quickly identify fraudulent transactions and have a chance to stop them. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. So, <laughs> oh, you know, but I mean, here's the flip side. The, the only other, well, there's other options, but they're not willing to slow down these transfer times. That That's key to the banking industry is this stuff's got to move fast. I mean, unless there's a way to claw back money in the time that, okay, so let's say I get my reconciliation report at I don't know, 9 a.m. every day of what happened yesterday. Uh, it might be too late at that point. It's gone. I don't know. Right. I mean, it, it, it might help. It will limit the damage down the line. It It would help rather than having somebody else detect it and tell you, you have a better chance of finding out about it much more quickly. Uh, so that's good. I mean, this is a positive step, but it's actually not preventative. It is just limiting the damage. Right, right. And, you know, it's also interesting to think about in the context of the Bank of Bangladesh attack, which happened uh, on the day before, on the evening before a long weekend in Bangladesh. And and so you have to wonder that you know, would would the banks actually have somebody looking at the report anyway right so if that were to, if that were to have happened when these reports were available would this would the outcome have really have changed i'm not sure it would have but you know again it is a step in the right direction it's not a panacea but um it's just uh it's amazing that this wasn't already in place i guess yeah it you know, especially when we look back at the original Bangladesh thing, there was another timing issue, like you mentioned on the weekend, that people weren't there to pick up a twenty-four or a one eight hundred hotline either to verify anything. There was, there wasn't a twenty-four-seven mindset around these transfers. There was just implicit trust. Right. So there wasn't this whole concept of a fraud issue being worked out of normal business hours. So we'll see. I mean, it's clear that Swift is doing something that, even though I think they originally tried to say, look. Not our problem. You guys need to handle this. This is your endpoint. You secure it. We trust it if you send it to us. And I yeah. think that they've kind of lost that PR battle at this point. And now they're being forced to react into building some assurances into the system. Right. Now, if you read the, uh, if you actually read the, the the press release on Swift's website, they they actually make reference to uh, another program which they don't talk about in this Ars Technica article, as far as I can tell. And that is they're, they're, they're also implementing a facility to, um, to block your, I'm going to be overly simplistic here, right? But to block your terminal from requesting uh, um, an unapproved party from, uh, from receiving a request from you, right? So, so you if, kind of whitelist who, who you're allowed to send money to? Yes, that's what, you know, they, they didn't have a lot of details, but it seems like there's another, you know, there's another bit of development uh, behind the scenes. So I think it's a good, you know, they, look, put it this way. They've got the message, right? <laughs> they, mm -hmm. Everybody knows, I would assume, just about any bank who's on the SWIFT network now understands the risk. SWIFT understands the risk. Regulators understand the risk. I, I got to imagine there's going to be a lot of, uh, of development in this area pretty rapidly. I wonder if anybody's contemplating a competitor to Swift. Well, you know, interestingly, I think um, I think blockchain is there. There are some blockchain solutions coming out. 
Like that. yeah, I still think a lot of banks probably look at that as voodoo and hacker stuff. <laughs> well, that's probably true. <laughs> no, you know, maybe maybe they'll eventually start to understand it better, but I think that they just wrongly associate it with cryptocurrencies and you know ransomware and that yeah. sort of thing. I'll have to talk to you about that later. <laughs> I was just Googling how to run a ransomware network after learning that $121 million is perhaps. <laughs> no, I, I meant I, I, banks are much farther down the line on looking at blockchain than you might think. Hmm. So anyway, uh, moving on to our next story, which comes from bankinfosecurity.com. And the title here is FBI to ransomware victims. Please come forward because we want to publicly shame you. <laughs> oh, that last part wasn't in part no. of the title. I'm sorry. We're from the government, and we're here to help. That's what they're trying to say. Right. You know, right. You know, the, whole, the whole purpose for this, I'll tell you, is, is buried in a bullet point that we'll get to, but the whole thing is coming down to one word, my friend. Resources. Yeah. It's all about the Benjamins. Right. Right. So, uh, so... It's a it's a pretty simplistic story, but the FBI has put out the uh, the word that they would like U.S. organizations to come forward when they are hit with ransomware, and uh, and and provide them some details like the date of infection, what ransomware variant it was, you know, what industry you're in, how it, the infection happened, how much the you know the the, the ransom was, what the the Bitcoin wallet was, or you know, other payment address, uh, the, the amount that you paid, uh, whether you got the data back, um, those sorts of things. And by the way, they also, despite kind of contra to what uh, the FBI said in a previous release, I guess it was last year, they're um, they're saying please don't pay. Right, and and I I hinted at this earlier. They they also. Some people, in fact, don't get their stuff back when they pay. Yeah, that's a, to be brutally honest, a pretty small portion that, that, that we're aware of right now. Now, that may get worse, but. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, certainly, certainly prevention is where you want to be, right? But if you, assuming you've not been hit by one of the variants that, um, that just deletes your files, it's, this is probably, um, you know, business decision that you have to make. Uh, yeah. To be fair, we, we have, you know, I probably come down a position of paying is a bad idea, but there are times when I think that it's probably the least bad option. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've, we've seen it in the past we know that people pay 121 million bucks, right? So interestingly, they they mentioned why report, and, and they have three bullet points: intelligence reporting crime gives law enforcement agencies a more accurate picture of attackers' techniques, so that they can attempt to track and ultimately disrupt them. I'm going to be really brutal here. The vast majority of times, when I look at what's coming out of government sources, I heard about it months ago on some other private forum, not private—I mean private public forum, but you know, non-government news feed of some variety. Right. I'm sorry, government is just so damn slow when it comes to this kind of stuff. You know, it's, it's, I, I'm not trying to pick on it, but, you know, when you look at U.S. CERT, it's a great example in the U.S. 
<laughs> they'll publish an alert of something that came out two weeks ago and I've already patched. Thanks. You know, I just, I just have trouble feeling that the feds move fast enough on small issues like this to be of much help. Now, certainly they do want to understand what the trends are and, and, and try to help, but come on. Anyway, so, you know, skipping ahead, arrests, amassing intelligence on cyber crime gangs helps investigators better correlate gangs' activities, thus potentially helping them unmask and pursue the individuals involved as their attacks generate more clues. The FBI has previously noted that much of the infrastructure being used by cyber criminals is hosted overseas and that it often works with international law enforcement agencies. Now, that's probably legitimate. And it's probably reasonable, uh, although ransomware is tough to track down, especially when, you know, we've got cryptocurrency. But I really think this goes to the third bullet, which is funding. Crime reports also help law enforcement agencies gauge the scale of the problem so they can devote sufficient resources as well as secure needed funding from legislators or other policymakers. One thing that I have learned over and over again from my friends in government, it's all about the budget. Yeah. I do want to say on the intelligence front, I've I've had some discussions with law enforcement people. I have complained incessantly about the very thing that you mentioned. And um, they're they're quick to point out that the delays tend to be in making things public, that if you were to look inside, that things happen much more rapidly. So, you know, take that for what it is. But yeah, um, I think from the perspective of law enforcement, you know, reacting publicly, it's probably going to continue to appear slow. But they're they're they allegedly have uh, you know more rapid internal processes. Allegedly, now, to be fair, I see nothing against reporting to the FBI unless you know the bad guy somebody breached that database and they don't know who's willing to pay ransoms and they go after you guys. But that's a different. That would never happen. That would never happen. Never. Never. So unlikely. <laughs> Not gonna happen. <laughs> totally. No, but in all seriousness, I, I, I mean, I, I don't see a problem with it. I just, I, I wonder, you know, I wonder how much good it'll do. I guess is what I'm saying, but I don't think it hurt. Right. All right. So, oh, our, and, oh, and if you're curious, oh. by the way, to report it, there's a web form and a website, or contact your local FBI field office. Yeah, and it it sends a copy to the uh, to the Wall Street Journal, I think. <laughs> No. Oh, Krebs. Shoot. Krebs. That's right, Krebs, yes. <laughs> All right, moving on to our next story, which also comes from bankinfosecurity.com. And the title here is NIST Unveils a Cybersecurity Self-Assessment Tool. Oh, boy. Because um, we don't have enough of these. We need we, at least three more. We totally do not have enough of these. So, um, so it, it, yes. This is, a, you know, apparently tied to the NIST cybersecurity framework. However, I have actually read through this, this new tool, which is called the Baldridge Cybersecurity Excellence Builder. And is, I, I really can't um, draw any parallels to the NIST cybersecurity framework. Uh, but anyway, that could just be me. I may maybe have an off day or or something. Uh, but anyway, the 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 tool is built off of the Malcolm Baldridge, you know, the the whole Malcolm Baldridge Excellence Award, and and they uh, the NIST has this uh, performance excellence program, which is is kind of a methodology for decomposing 
things in you know, business problems or, or organizational problems into a, a series of measurable questions and whatnot. And I actually kind of like this thing. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to say that right too much and too loudly, but see, see what happens when you become an executive. Do you see? Um, <laughs> uh, it, it, man, we have lost you. You're, you're gone. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But next, next you're going to be asking about TPS reports. Yep. Been meaning to talk to you about that. Um, anyway, I, I, I think it's worth you kind of going back to the, the earlier point about justifying things to our executives, right? You know, it's, it's not going to be a panacea, right? And you're going to get out of it what you put into it. There's no question about it, but I'll be, I'll be candid. This thing is heads and shoulders above the NIST framework, even though I can't see the rep, the, the, the relationship to the framework. Um, this is what, in my view, this is what the framework should have been. Um, well, the framework the has, has had very mixed reviews since it came out, and there's a lot of grumbling around it. Where, you know, some of the defenders, though, uh, say, well, it's because it's, it's meant to be one size fits all, that you scale up and down, and you've got to figure out how to use it for you. I don't know. I, I don't know where I fall on that yet, but there's definitely a lot of grumbling around the frame, the, the existing framework. It's too, it's too squishy to be useful, in my view. It's like nailing jello to a wall. Well, uh, the counter to that, though, is when you get very prescriptive, it doesn't match your company's risk, uh, you know, behavior profile and, and risk acceptance and risk tolerance and culture. And I don't, I don't disagree with that at all. All I'm saying is, as a tool, I didn't find it very useful. Did you just call me a tool? Yes. And an unuseful tool is that a, a, a useless tool? I think is what I said. Wow. All right, I'll be talking HR later. Carry on. <laughs> uh, so, um, so yeah, I, I, I'm a, I count myself as, in its current form, a detractor of the NIST uh, framework. I, you know, I think it's a good idea. It's a move. It's it's a step in the right direction. It it, you know, the, the whole one of the one of the ideas, in my view, of the framework, which. This thing, this this Baldridge Cybersecurity Excellence Builder, doesn't accommodate that. This excellent builder, excellence builder tool is really to help a particular organization get better, and I think it has a high likelihood of of being able to help do that if you put in the right, you know, the right effort. Um, whereas the one of the advantages of the the cybersecurity tool is that it helps you compare yourself to others in your industry and in, in different which i've always found is an odd measure yes well I, I agree but that's as an executive now right? right that's the that's the thing that everybody cares no, about like how, I get it. how how are we doing you know are we are we more or about less than our than our competitors it's trying to tap into the wisdom of crowds right how are we aligned with our you know, our sector, our vertical. Right. Assuming that at aggregate that their their sector is got the right level of investment or maturity or whatever they're measuring against. I've always found that to be an odd way of measuring oneself. And, and all I have to say is if you are measuring yourself against your peers, 
you're not spending enough time reading breach reports because <laughs> because you're you're basically comparing yourself to companies that are getting owned all the time and and that's i just don't think it's a good I just you're sort of basically grading on a curve yeah yeah and anyway the other thing is it 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 also it gives i i think the more the more tangible benefit is that regulators uh regulators can you know, hopefully adopt a uh, you know, a profile and say that, you know, if you're going to be an electric company or if you're going to be a bank or if you're going to be a water company or whatever, right, here's what your profile has to look like. And, and you know, you have flexibility in how you can get to that. Uh, but I think there's still too much sloppiness in the system for it to be um, really useful because it's so subjective. And you're talking about the NIST framework? The now? NIST framework, yeah. Yeah. Um, but and then the other the other angle too is uh, I, I think it ha- holds a lot of promise for vendor management to, for a, for a company to be able to say okay you know here is what we want you to look like from a you know a cybersecurity control perspective again you know it, same caveat applies I don't think the you know the tool isn't there yet <laughs> it, it I think it'll get there over time uh, they had to start somewhere. But again, I yeah, sure. I really think I really encourage everyone to take a look at this Baldridge Cybersecurity Excellence Builder thing. It's you know you'll 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 roll your eyes at first, right? Read through it, roll your eyes, go to sleep, and then think about it in the next day, and uh, you know whatever. Now, if I finish reading the report at like two in the afternoon, I should go to sleep right then. Is that what you're telling me to do? My recommendation, because you'll be tired. All right. Okay. I'll tell my boss you said to. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. And then our last story for today comes from the New York Times. And the title here is Wells Fargo warned workers against sham accounts, but they needed a paycheck. But Jerry, what does this possibly have to do with information security? Uh, perverse incentives. Oh, this is the perverted part of the show. Nice. So anyway, we talked a little bit about this uh, this Wells Fargo story last time, and uh, again, <clears throat> the deal here is that 5,300 employees were let go because of uh, fraud, right? So now, to be clear, that's over a period of five years, by the way. Yeah, that's true. It wasn't. It wasn't uh, I think this was somewhat lost in the reporting. It, this is spread over time, but yeah, go ahead. Right. So, um, so the just to recap, the story here is that. Wells Fargo apparently had set up um, an incentive structure where their sales staff were compensated on opening new accounts. So credit not, card accounts. Not just their sales staff, anybody working. Good point. Yeah, it was folks who interact with account holders. So, you know, you're working at a desk. I mean, these are the bankers. These are the folks in the in the call centers and in the branches that people come in and interact with. They're, they're not just sales folks. It's just a normal, everyday branch tellers right i think that yeah like i think even the tellers yeah were in on it too so anyway they they had a quota basically wherever you were at i guess you had a quota on opening you know effectively accounts which which uh, bore fees and allegedly the uh, the the quotas were so steep that the only real way to um, to meet them 
was through fraud. And so what they ended up resorting to was opening um, accounts in the name of existing customers. And, you know, they would, there's, there's, there's a tons of stories. And by the way, if you, if you go to Google news and search for Wells Fargo, I mean, this is just, the story is erupting right now. They're, they're being called in front of Congress and there's, there's a calls. Yeah. The the CEO testified in front of Congress today and they grilled him pretty, pretty hard. They're talking about clawing back executive bonuses and whatnot. But anyway, um, you know, one of the, one of the highlights that's, um, that this brought up here is that uh, there was a, a branch, I guess it was back in 2011 or so, um, th- there was a branch in California that was doing really well against their quotas. And so um, managers, from, branch managers from all around the country were visiting this to figure out you know, what they were doing and learning their tricks. Well, apparently their tricks were opening these fraudulent accounts. Uh, and and so that that kind of spread like like wildfire, and uh, and so in the ensuing aftermath, the uh, the former employees report the kind of the the cognitive dissonance of taking ethics training courses, saying not to do this. And this, I thing. think, is is the key thing why I want to talk about this story too, which is they went through the the various employees went through training after training after training after training saying you do not do this this is not what we do this is not our organization this is not our culture this is you know we're upstanding ethical much like all of us do with our folks about things like clicking on links that come in email and being careful with how we use company information right think before you click don't open an email from someone you don't know but this is such a great example of why Otherwise, great employees may drive us security folks crazy because they won't follow policy and process to keep the company safe because of stuff like this. When they're being judged or they need to keep their job by getting something else done that is contrary to policy, if their job is on the line or if their money is on the line, they're going to go around it. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, from their perspective... I can either be fired for sure, right, or or maybe I can do this thing which seems less than ethical and and uh, you know not only do I get to keep my job but I may actually you know get a pat on the back. But there's there's been a lot of um, you know a lot of discussion about the culpability of management and you know did they were they aware that this was going on and and I think this also extends into the information security world too because. I think in a lot of cases, and you know, this this kind of goes back to Enron and Volkswagen and you know others where people people know what's going on, right? And people know that there's there's shenanigans happening, but it's happening for the betterment of the company, and so there's not a lot of incentive to fix it. Right. Well, and I'll, I'm going to be very clear in saying I don't know that leadership knew or didn't know. I, I'm not going to take a position on that yet. But I think what is clear is compensation drives behavior. And when you set 
a compensation level or you set a goal that someone's measured against that ultimately becomes unattainable or is in conflict with the ethics or, or the, the culture you're trying to set, you will create these problems. And so if we bring this back to the information security world, don't take customer information off site. Okay. You need to be a high performer if you want to get that promotion. Okay. Well, I ran out of time at work today. I got to get this done for the Monday morning meeting. I'll just take it home to work on it this weekend. Yep. And then it gets lost. We told you not to take that home. Right. And so if you are putting these restrictions in place, you have to think through the long tail of behavior on employees. And are you setting up a cognitive dissonance against your own policies by other policies that are pushing people that is much more immediate in terms of their compensation or their, or their promotional prospects or even keeping their job right. that's going to work against your security? Right. Because I will tell you something. Employees, even the best of employees, will throw your security rules out the window if their job's on the line. It's one of the first things that'll go. Yeah, it's but, not their problem. Their problem is what their boss is telling them to do. Right, but and that is a leadership problem. Sure. Right. But how often do we see this disconnect? A lot. I mean, I. You think a sales manager gives two shits about security practice? Maybe once a year when they recertify. <laughs> Well, the, but but that's the, that's the that's the very point, right? It it is, it, it is. This is tone at the top. Yeah. Right. And you. But is it? Is it though? I mean, I'm not trying to defend the executives here, but I can see this being entirely plausible. Of middle management driving these incentives, and unless you have a really really sharp corporate audit team to see past this, and see the bigger picture. Yeah. All you see is a, a sales team that's actually hitting these really aggressive goals. Wow, they said they could hit them. Wow, they're hitting them. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I, I You're right. At a, at a very senior level, somebody should have seen this cognitive distance being set up. Right. But I don't know. I don't know that anybody's really looking at this sort of thing. Well, I think what was what's what was the reason I'm not inclined to give the senior leadership a pass on this is that this this played out over a number of years, yeah. And it started out really bad, and they got called on it, and, and they even hired a uh, an outside firm to come in and help investigate. But yeah, it, Ian, but why? but it perpetuated. It continued. Even after that, it continued for a while, and you know it wasn't until very recently, like I think within the last several weeks, that they actually finally changed the compensation program. Well, and they haven't yet. They're going to. It oh, the they're going. The okay, sorry. Yeah. yeah, they haven't even done it yet. And I'm and, sorry. That is a leadership problem. I, uh, fair, but you know the, the flip side of that is there's always going to be some percentage of your organization doing bad things. I agree, but 5,300 people. No, I, I I'm not. Uh, no, <laughs> that's no, a small no, city. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. There was clearly a systemic fraud, and people learned from other people. And this is how you game the system, and, and this is how you make these exorbitant quotas. No, I'm not defending that at all. What I am saying is that you never get to zero. Obviously, they're oh, way agree. above zero. You're right. <laughs> Excuse me, and way out of bounds here. So they clearly had issues. Yeah. But I would say in any organization that you, you have an opportunity to game a system where there's a weakness, you're going to have some small portion, uh, and I don't know what that is, of, of folks who are willing to commit fraud. Now, 
The point is you find that and you stop that and you cycle those people out quickly. What you had here is much more of a systemic ongoing issue built on these unattainable quotas. Right. They set it up. It was, had, it was structurally had created. It was, yeah. I, I guess what I'm trying to argue is that the level of people involved are beyond what I would think of of the of the normal level of incidents of people willing to commit fraud just to commit fraud to to up their pay. This is far more into pushing normally good people into doing bad things because they feel like they didn't have a choice. Yes, that's a great point. This this demonstrates the power of perverse incentives. Yeah. Absolutely. Maybe I didn't articulate well. No, you you, you well, maybe not, but you you hit the you hit the the cord right at the end there. That is a good point. I mean, in, I think um, I think they have a couple hundred thousand employees, if memory serves, like two hundred, three hundred thousand employees. Uh, so fifty two, fifty three hundred isn't you know it's not a huge number, uh, but it is you know it is more than you would you would expect in uh, to, to be you know performing illicit activities. You know, in, in that kind of population, you're going to have murderers, rapists, bank robbers, you know, all sorts of criminals. But And that's just my local branch. <laughs> uh, but you're not going to have, um, you're not going to have 5,300 people all performing the same, you know, the, the same scam. And who knows how many other folks were doing it who weren't fired for it, who left or, I mean, this was just the people who got fired that have been confirmed or have been fired over this issue. Right. This is clearly a far more widespread practice. Yeah. So they, they by the way, were um, were fined and settled. Uh, uh, they settled for one hundred eighty five million dollars in fines, uh, and then they they al- they also have to pay back uh, the the fees that were illicitly uh, collected from their customers. Because again, the whole point of this was to open up bank accounts that that were fee bearing. Yeah, and, cross sell. Somebody's got a bank account, sell them a credit card. They got a bank, the savings account, give them a checking account. Right. right. And and those those accounts had fees, so now they got to go back and pay those fees. Which, you know, I, surprisingly, I think they said there was something like eight million dollars in fees that they uh, apparently were ill-gotten gains, which isn't a ton of money <laughs> when you think about right. it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's a whole lot of pain coming down for. I mean, we we have a situation where the sales program was built very badly. And it drove a lot of really bad behavior. And hopefully other organizations can learn from this. But the takeaway for me is this absolutely has a huge impact in employee behavior in the information security world. Huge. This is a perfect parallel in my mind. I agree with that. Yep. Because the vast majority of employees who otherwise are great employees, I really do honestly feel that Unless there's a technical control stopping them, if if there's a barrier to getting their job done that their boss needs them to do, they're going to go around security or they're going to not remember that once-a-year training you gave them. Right. This is why phishing works. This is why social engineering works. It's, you know, people have other things and other incentives going on in their head that are far more powerful than... Oh, well, the guy at security told me on the last WebEx that I shouldn't click on links. Yep. Well, I, <clears throat> but damn it, I got to get this report out. Right. I mean, there's... A... So Anyway, I, I, I'm ranting a bit, but this is so perfect that I wanted to bring it up that 
to cover it from from this standpoint. So you know the takeaway is is as bad as this sounds. We need if it really really matters to your organization, you need technical controls. You cannot rely on user education. Right. That's right. So um so that is the show for this evening. Thank you again for listening. Um, just kind of going forward, I want to let you know that the the next couple of weeks are probably going to be a little uh, little squirrely. Mr. Kautz getting married. I'm going to DerbyCon. I think next week next weekend there will be a, um, a kind of a podcast mashup episode while I'm uh, out at DerbyCon, and then after that, the, the we'll probably be probably be a little inconsistent for a couple of weeks while I am uh, traveling um, for uh, for work. Uh, but then we'll get back probably in late um, late October, early November. So thanks again for listening and your patience. And uh, also thank you to everyone who has donated to our Patreon campaign. It's really uh, very, very meaningful and appreciate that a lot. Yeah, let, let me echo that. Thank you very much for everyone who has continued to donate and has ever donated to us. That's incredibly kind and generous of you. Thank you. And... Um, if you uh, if you want to find links to the stories we talked about tonight, you can find them on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org, or you can also conveniently find them embedded in the MP3. I never really mentioned that. Um, Look at Mr. Fancy. I know. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow uh, Mr. Kell on Twitter at Lurg, and me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And with that, we will talk again next time. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Bye. I mean, I know most people forget I'm even here, and that the show is only you. They probably just think. Who, who are you again? They probably just think I'm like Siri. You know, just some voice app. Yeah. Well, while you're. Uh... While you're off on your honeymoon, that's what I'm going to do. Thanks. That makes me feel better. Siri, if by your voice. <laughs> Why, hello, Jerry. <laughs> your mom is funny looking. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, my. All right. Your mom's so funny looking, she thinks IPv4 is something that happens in the bathroom. Ha, ha, ha. Goodness, that was awesome.